Yeah, so to kick it off a little bit, set context for, for everyone um, as we're starting off here. Hewan and I probably met my junior year of college. I was taking courses at the D-Lab at MIT, which is a lab specifically focused at the intersection of humanitarian aid, engineering, and design, and really advocates for principles of co-design. So, so Hewan and I met there when I was working on the Greece project where D-Lab was helping with a program called the Horizon Center at a shelter called Pharos in Athens, Greece. Um, and yeah, Hiwan, I guess you can you know mention more probably around kind of your role there and, and what you did, but feel free to take it away. And also mention a little bit about your own background in terms of how you ended up at D-Lab. So I've been working in more commercial space, uh, product design, interaction design for many years. Uh, there was this one time when I just like felt that whatever I was designing wasn't really benefiting, you know, the people. But that's why I kind of like, you know, did some research and found out about this place at MIT called D-Lab, where they kind of use engineering, design, you know, combine them together to work alongside with, you know, community members to kind of develop you know, appropriate solutions that can actually, you know, work in the context that they actually live in. So yeah, I just basically just bought a ticket and then flew to Boston one day and then, you know, just knocked on their doors like, hey, uh, could you guys give me a tour? Right. And like, yeah, sure. So they showed me around. We had a good chat. And during that conversation, they kind of mentioned this one program that they do every year called uh, International Development Design Summits. Stands for IDDS. Um, yeah, and then they said that, hey, you should apply. It's really cool. You know, it's a month-long kind of like design conference where you go to this place, uh, you kind of like live with community members, and then you learn about the MIT D-Lab design process, which is kind of like more focused on co-creation. And, you know, you kind of co-create solutions together with the locals and then, you know, kind of disseminate whatever technology or service that you have. You basically end up like, you know, designing together. And for me, that was like, oh, my God, that is so cool. Like, I never, like, you know, really thought that, you know, you can work alongside with the end users to kind of create something that's, you know, you know, um, that can have some impact. So, yeah, sure. So I applied. I went to this first, like, IDDS back in 2013 in Zambia. I uh, basically stayed there for, like, a month uh, with community members, um, learned a lot about the, the MIT D-Lab approaches, and we had this like really awesome project that we kind of like built at the very end, which was really amazing because a lot of the, uh, you know, locals were kind of like really interested in it. We actually built a couple of prototypes for them to actually use it for a while. And after that, I came back, but I was like really passionate about that project. Um, I literally just, you know, went back the following year and then kept on coming back to just like check up on their products, like how they use things. And that just became like a passion. Like, you know, I mean, it was like a side project for me. But the more I did it, I just like felt like this was what I wanted to do. But I just wanted to focus in on that a little bit, especially for for a lot of people who are more familiar with like the kind of, you know, tech centric product mm-hmm. development or way of thinking of design. It's very much like a like a, I'm going to study the user. I'm going to do user research. I'm going to, you know, figure out what the user wants and then build it for them. Could, could yeah. you talk a little bit about like what you actually did in Zambia? Because I think D-Lab's approach to co-design is just so you know, on the cutting edge of participatory design and actually getting in with the community? Like, what, what was the project you built there? 
Right. So the project we built was a aluminum furnace. So a lot of the locals, you know, that we were kind of like working with were living in this slum, like basically right next to a landfill near this, the capital city called Lusaka. And they would go to these like landfills and then try to find like aluminum scraps and then bring it back and then they'll melt it and then kind of like produce like different like products like pots or tools and things and stuff. But the process of making it was just such a dangerous process. You know, you'll see a lot of people actually burning their like hands off and then getting to accidents. Sometimes if you don't get the temperature right, you know, the aluminum will actually explode, you know, in the process of melting it. So we kind of like wanted to create something that was a bit more safer. So this is where, you know, the whole like, you know, D-Lab, you know, approach kicks in. The approach that D-Lab takes is also like a strand of the participatory design process. It's not designing for, it's more focused on designing with people, right? So there is that component where you kind of have to train them, educate them in order to kind of like roll into different phases of the design process. And, but the cool thing is, you know, you're not just like having them on your team to get insightful, like a lot of insights throughout the process, but you're also kind of like educating them, building capacity for them alongside. And I think that really kind of pushes whatever product or service that you design it and to sustain, you know, in whatever context that you want to, you know, deliver it into. So that's like the uh, kind of like a very different uh, kind of like way of how D-Lab approaches participatory design by designing with the users. And also there's another uh, type, you know, approach that D-Lab takes is designed by the users. Uh, and this is uh, more focused on uh, not really like working alongside with them to do a project, but it's more focused on training them in order for them to have the capacity to kind of go through the design process by themselves to create products. This is more so the the work you're doing in Greece, right? Yes, yes. So Faros is the NGO uh, that basically is comprised with, I think, like a couple of different things. First, a shelter, an accompanied minor shelter for boys and kind of run that. Uh, they have the Horizon Center, where it's more like design, education, vocational training things that we're just talking about. They have a walk-in center, where it kind of focuses more on the psychosocial kind of like, um, you know, support and things and stuff. And they also have this other component that they do a lot of street work. When I first started getting into design, one of my friends who is now also like kind of part of the Zeitgeist community, like Shuya, um, she was the one who actually originally introduced me to the whole concept, but something that... I had started like thinking a lot more about, especially as I started getting like way more into like community organizing and things like that was just like how to make sure that the solutions that you build are actually maintained and equitable and things like that. Being able to make sure that the solution is actually built and deployed in a really like equitable way. I think that's like something that I've always wanted to learn a lot more about and how to do that sustainably. When you started saying like, oh yeah, I started going back and like building capacity and things like that. That's like where I'm now at, where I'm, okay, how do you actually build and maintain that capacity? One thing I'm curious about, Hiwag, is like, what what are the next steps to making this institution sustainable? Um, like, is it a matter of like fully transferring over to governance? Is it like, you know, I'll have to fly in instructors to run it? Like, what are the like quantified? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Great yeah. question. So, um, it is still like run with some of the like outsourced fundings that we kind of get, which kind of like doesn't like really make it sustainable. It'll be great if we can like kind of like 
generate our own like kind of income through this thing but that's not like the goal like for us the goal is to continuously educating you know unaccompanied refugee minors you know through this design program that we have but i believe and then what we're trying to do is to make sh- right now a lot of these staff are greeks right yeah but teaching you know afghani or syrian or other like country children um that are speaking a different language uh you know by greeks or people like me or by mit students or harvard students or risd students you know it's just not you know there's the cultures are different we speak this different language so there are like some you know uh issues that arose there but so we really want to kind of hire a lot of the students that come up from our program uh we recently hired one uh student um so he is now our intern in the in the whole program but later on you know we would love to hire more and then our final goal would be to have the leader of the Ryan Center to be one of the refugee boys or girls who kind of came out from it so we think through that way you know it'll be you know top by refugees and then you know i think that will actually attract more uh you know refugee population to come to our program it's super cool for myself to see a boy from the program get hired into the program because you know when i started in like 2019 like we had been bouncing around ideas like that as a means of making it sustainable right it's like a pretty go to idea of like oh mm-hmm. what boy goes through the program you can just hire them and it it seemed almost impossible at the time so it's really cool to to see that maybe that will be like a, a sustainable avenue to 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 make the the horizon center more self sustaining What's like an example of one of these projects like or you know what's your what's your favorite class project that you've seen like in terms of like yeah you know, okay. whatever vector you want to choose uh, I'm I'm a little biased I can pitch my own class <laughs> <laughs> When when I was um uh in Athens uh my curriculum was around uh um Shoot, what did I call my class? Like intro intro to circuitry or intro to electronics? Electronics, we, yeah. Right, right. And we did uh Arduino programming. So, we took out a bunch of Arduinos, got some basic circuitry together. Um, essentially I would walk the boys through exercises in which we would learn the basics of electrical engineering like, "Hey, let's uh hook up this battery to this LED. Let's see what happens." Okay, like let's try to, you know, make a basic circuit with some buttons. Okay, now let's try to um, and it was actually like a, a week-long course that culminated in progressively more difficult tasks eventually, eventually. And what they ended up building at the end was they had to work as a team to construct a digital scoreboard. Because what a lot of these boys would do is they'd play soccer in their free time. So yeah. we had this, um, some boys like went off to the side and built the, you know, wooden casing. Some boys went off to the side and did the Arduino programming for like, okay, if we hit the buttons, this is like the different lights that will turn on to represent numbers. Some boys built like the, the MOSFET circuitry to like run the LEDs at a particular voltage. Some boys, you know, built the LED MOSFET circuitry to run those LEDs at a particular voltage. So, so, and then they had to piece that all together to build this scoreboard. But yeah, yeah, no, it's, it was, It's super cool seeing, you know, tween to early teenage boys, you know, kind of come together and you know, there there there's language barrier, there's like an education barrier, but you know, despite all that, you know, this kind of shared love of like learning to design and build things. Um 
something that's been on my mind through like a lot of this conversation and even as i like think about this in the context of like community organizing or community driven design things like that is that idea of like okay you as a as someone coming from like totally outside the community like how do you then like kind of interface in the right way how do you engage in the right way that like acknowledges like the position that you that you kind of hold or like the power that you hold or like the different perspectives that you come in with but then also like really tries to facilitate like design education within like any of these communities that you go into yeah well I, i feel like i had a cheat code in that i actually speak punjabi and you know a little bit of hindi and urdu so particularly for the pakistani boys like i could i could speak with them and they would see me in my turban and they'd be like oh you know like a Sardar, which is like, you know, a person, you know, with his turban. But I think, I think he one could probably talk more about it. I know he's, he's actually really good at this, like coming in with high energy and like winning the boys over. Like the boys are, <laughs> he will never say this, but the boys are like diehard he won fans. Yeah. Uh, it's really, it's really tricky, I guess. A lot of times when we bring students and then the students will actually kind of build these activities to teach these classes. But I always tell them that since, you know, we're coming from a different country, like Humphrey, as you said, you know, they perceive us as the person in power. So I think, you know, what what I usually do is to kind of like narrow that gap as much as possible. So I try to like, you know, show them that I'm not really that teacher per se, but more closer to like an older brother type of person that is kind of like, you know, helping you out on some stuff, you know, that's fun stuff. Um, so yeah, in order to do that, um, you know, just like bring a lot of positive energy in class, you're not like there to like lecture them. It's more like a play thing. So you just like have so much energy. I sometimes say that, you know, you have to put your showmanship on, you know, kind of like imagine this as like a TV show and you're like the host, how can (laughs) you make the audience, you know, like enjoy it. Right. Yeah. So it's like really acting out doing like, uh, just like trying to bring a lot of positive energy to it. And once you kind of like do that, um, I think a lot of them like open up a lot quicker. I think one other thing is one thing that we uh, try to like melt in every single activity is to figure out what that cultural thing is that relates to them. So when we do a skit, when we talk to tell about the story, we don't talk about like Obama or talk about some Korean, you know, whatever, you know, example. We always try to find those examples or things that kind of relate to the tradition and once you do that, they emphasize on it, and then the class actually moves on better. The second is, we thought that we needed so many translators, you know, so like, oh, for this class, mm-hmm. since we have, you know, an Afghani boy, Farsi translations, you know, Arabic, and then maybe Urdu, you know, all there. And then the first couple classes were literally, you know, we had like three different translators, and I would say something in English, and they would translate, and it would just like be like, go on forever. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really, you'll be like, okay, class is over now. You know, yeah. So, um, yeah. But one 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 thing we realize is that these like you know, uh, boys and girls and women are so like smart. You know, a lot of people will think that you know, you know, they haven't been into formal education. You know, probably you know they don't really understand what they're saying. But no, you know, they really catch the ideas really quick. And the craziest thing is that a lot of these like boys who actually take the journey. There, I mean, this journey itself, like from Afghanistan to Greece, is like all That's about true. survival, you know, yeah. And yeah. to survive that, you know, language is the most crucial thing you just have to learn on the way, right? Yeah. So they really catch, you know, the, uh, you know, like different phrases, different languages really fast. And then at the yeah. end of the journey, most boys can speak, you know, uh, 
obviously if you're, if you're from Afghanistan, you know, not just Farsi, but, you know, uh, some like Arabic for sure. Uh, some speak English. Uh, they catch Greek pretty well. A lot of the boys at the rent centers speak like four languages or even more, you know, maybe not perfectly, but if you, yeah, they would still understand. So the question was around this idea of like, what is the overall mission of the organization? Is it like general technological education and could potentially expand to things beyond the program now, or is it more about like engaging with these children? Well, well Hiwan, you can mention a little bit about the um, design curriculum that you've, the, the, and just for background, Hiwan's official role or capacity in the Greece project is is a curriculum designer, right? You feel yes. free to dive into that. Right. Yeah. So I was hired as the curriculum designer because I've been like doing a lot of design workshops around the world and then has a kind of good idea on the creative capacity building, you know, workshop that ELAB does. But what happened, just to give you a little bit more context, is that the first couple workshops I did was solely focused on the creative capacity building. So it was like taking them in. First day, like we deep dive into the design process. You know, first you have to gather information. Second, you have to synthesize the information. You know, the stuff that we kind of like know, right? But I mean, think about it. Like boys and women who haven't been in a formal education, you know, and all of a sudden you want them to understand like what information gathering is and then how to synthesize it and things and stuff. Like, no, like it just doesn't work that way. So in the first couple of classes, we just like lose so many students. It's like, I don't know where this is going. I don't know. Why is this benefiting me? So we built this class called the basic training class where it's more focused on vocational training where it's fun. You learn new, you know, uh, skills, learn new tools, you know, you create something. It's all good, right? Yeah. But even that was kind of too much of, you know, a barrier for a lot of boys to kind of like really enjoy it because as I said, a lot of these boys, you know, go through this journey. A lot of them are traumatized, you know, like still they don't feel safe coming into this space they don't trust adults, you know, they don't trust instructors. So like just dropping them into this classroom setting wasn't a good idea. So we wanted them to have like this other like, you know, part before the basic training parts, before like doing the vocational training to just like be in the space, you know, forget about design, forget about everything, you know, just like be here, you know, meet friends, you know, like have fun, you know, and just like feel safe and all that. We have this other class called the activity class where they just come in. You know, we uh, pair them up with like different, like, you know, uh, older student boys in the program, you know, uh, and then give them like a simple challenge. So each team is comprised with five students, like say that two are new, the other three are like the current boys, but one of the boys are actually one of the senior boys who kind of like lead the team, but they all kind of like are in the same kind of like age group. So it kind of has that design process element, but they don't really deep dive into it. But, you know, it's like a fun place to be. Uh, you meet friends, you get free lunch, you get to meet some of the instructors, build that trust. And after doing a couple of iterations of those activities for a couple of weeks, a lot of boys are like, I want to really start, you know, getting into this pro- program. So that's when we, they go into the basic trainings, but every single class that we made for the basic training class, uh, first, you know, you learn the skills, you learn how to use the tools, but you also do these mini design projects where you kind of use the tools that you learn to create something at the very end that you can take home. It's something that I can proudly take home, brag about to, you know, if I have family, my family members or friends or to my shelter friends that I made a flashlight today, you know, I made a laser pointer thing today, you know, I made a phone stand. And then after that, uh, that's when uh, we kind of like move on to this other phase called the intro to design phase, 
where it's all about how can you combine these different skill sets in order to create a project, right? Yeah. So we have three projects in the intro to design program. First, uh, the big themes are designing for yourself. Second is designing for a friend. And third is designing as a team. And, uh, you know, this is also like one of those like projects where there's a lot of arguments because a lot of them will say, why do I have to design for somebody else when I can design for myself? You know, yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. You know, yeah, it's all about me. So, but once they go through that phase and then talk with their friends to kind of understand what my friends want and then kind of design something. And when they see, when they actually hand over that project to their friend and just see that smile, like, you know, that appreciation, they understand the joy of, you know, kind of like working with somebody, like, you know, creating something for somebody else. The last, the fourth phase is uh, focusing on, um, it's called the advanced design. So this one is, you know, exactly aligned with the D-Lab creative capacity building. But um, yeah, when they're, we don't give them like a, any like project theme or something. Like you guys worked as a team. You guys all know each other. You guys find what problem you guys want to solve, you know. Hmm. But the craziest right. thing is that in this, in this project, there hasn't been a single team that wanted to design something flashy or for themselves. Everybody, every single team, like always talks about, huh, we now know what we're good at. You know, is there a way we can use our skills to help others? I mean, that's the mindset they are now in, you know, which just blows your mind because first day, me, 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 maybe my friend. And now thinking outside the box, like, you know, like how can we contribute back to society? The biggest challenge right now that we're having is not just COVID, it's that Greece is a transit city you know not many boys actually stay in greece right yeah so in order for these boys to get to actually a stage where the technical stuff or the advanced stuff actually happens like takes quite some time right yeah so uh the average kind of like time for a unaccompanied minor to come to athens and then move on to a different eu country is about three months to six months tops right yeah so a lot of our projects up to like intro to design, those three phases are like something that, you know, a boy can do within six months and leave the country. Right. Yeah. Whereas the more advanced stuff are a little bit more, you know, harder to do if you are, you know, leaving the country within six months. Yeah. Yeah. And just to add like to, to paint the, the last kind of piece there a little more, like, I think one thing that, that people don't realize is the, the prevalence of, what's the term I'm looking for, a labor migration in, in particularly the, the Middle Eastern or the South Asian context. It's actually kind of funny. These, like, labor migration kind of patterns are actually how I ended up being born in America because my own father was born in Punjab, India, and then through a series of you know, perhaps like less legal means, you know, ended up, you know, traveling throughout the Middle East on a similar, actually a path very similar to a lot of these boys eventually ended up in the, in Canada, eventually ended up in the U.S., which was the the hot destination at the time. And Hiwan, you can correct me if it's changed, but I know, you know, very recently the hot destination has been Germany these oh, days, yeah. Yeah. particularly yeah. around kind of uh, how Germany is handled, um, I might be off on this, don't quote me, but particularly how Germany has handled refugees in the past, particularly around the time of the initial phases of the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, but, you know, as, as he was saying, Athens is sort of a transit city. So you can imagine, you know, if I'm coming, I've made this long journey, 
I'm in Athens, but my goal is to ultimately get to Germany. Um, this complicates the situation a bit because, you know, a lot of these boys don't necessarily view themselves as like, okay, like I'm staying here in Athens. Hmm. I'm here to, you know, earn money for my family. I'm going to, you know, send that money back. And then, you know, maybe I'll stay, but maybe I'll go back and then, you know, come back and forth. Um, but yeah, that's just, that's also one reason why I pers- you know, felt a personal investment in some of these boys. Cause I don't know, it's like low key, like my own, like 10 years ago, my own dad or something like that, you know, like more my own dad at their age, like coming through these countries and, you know, going somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. That, that definitely makes it like really tricky. Uh, I mean, the COVID definitely like slowed down the whole asylum process right now. So there are like some boys who are actually thinking about staying in Greece. The boy that we actually hired uh, was thinking about like moving on, but decided to stay because we kind of like offered him that, you know, space, you know, that he could actually be a staff. It was exactly what I wanted to do. And then, you know, uh, it was really fascinating to see that. But yeah. And he won actually you during COVID, you guys transitioned to doing a lot of online classes, right? So um, it was really challenging because, you know, you had this like in-person classes and then since it's a design school, you know, um, a lot of the classes have some type of materials, equipment, all that, you know, at the Rhine Center, obviously. And just like without that access, having all those stuff and then trying to do a design program online is pretty difficult. Yeah. Yeah. and another thing that was like made it so difficult is the access to data. Um, the good thing is that most of our beneficiaries actually have a smartphone. So I would say like 98% or 99% actually have a personal smartphone, which is good. But data, no. So um, they would usually come to the Rhine Center or, you know, different spots around the city where they know that there is like free Wi-Fi and kind of like stick around and use that. But if the whole country's in lockdown, I mean, you basically just can't leave your house. So right. there is no Wi-Fi anymore, which means that I can't take any more, you know, online classes. Right? Yeah. So it was like really challenging to kind of work around with that um, to uh, make it engaging, uh, interactive, still use a lot less data than just like normal YouTube videos or whatever, because those are like the first things I kind of we, we as a team started to create a bunch of YouTube videos that were like very vlog ish style you know fun ish style and things and stuff but yeah the boys really enjoyed it but like just streaming one like you know it takes away like 800 megabytes or one gig of your data that you just purchased which is pretty expensive to them right yeah so it wasn't like a sustainable kind of solution um but one cool thing that we kind of like found out later on is that um yeah we kind of like minimize the data usage uses different like platforms like whatsapp um start to use like more image based like instruction guides, uh, GIF files where there is some like movement and things and stuff that kind of give you an idea of, you know, what these things are. So, you know, it was a pretty, uh, uh, yeah, good way of kind of communicating some of the activities that we wanted to do. Um, and a lot of this stuff actually came out from one of my classes at RISD, like the first couple like online class materials came from my class, which is really amazing. You're, um, you are, are you currently like actually taking the work that you're doing and putting it into some sort of research? Are, are you officially a PhD student at MIT or, or how does that work? No, no, no. Uh, I did. I was, I was a PhD student back in South Korea. Yeah. At KAIST. Yeah. Oh, oh, right, right. That situation. I feel like we talked about this before. Yeah, yeah. Wait, what was the situation? Oh, yeah. yeah. Are you on? You want to tell the story? Um, 
Yeah, so uh, I was doing my PhD back in Korea at this uh, South Korea in this school called KAIST. It stands for Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. So it's like the MIT equivalent back in South Korea. Oh, cool. Um, and yeah, um, I was doing like, so there is an industrial design department and it's like heavily focused on, you know, human-centered design, human-centered interaction, you know, all the design research and things and stuff. So like, you know, as you know, like Korea has, you know, Samsung, LG, all these like, you know, tech companies and things. So a lot of the stuff, you know, you want to be kind of like focusing around tech, you know, yeah. And that's what we often did over there. Uh, but for me, yeah, so I was kind of following that path. Um, I was like more into like something else called uh, sustainable interaction. You know, how can we, you know, uh, change human behaviors to in order for them to act more sustainably, like environmentally sustainably, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but then got into this stuff, you know, like um, international development, you know, which is something that the school didn't really much care about, I guess, back in the days. Um, yeah, it's the same. It's just like making that big pivot you know like kind of angry a lot of uh you know professors and there was like why are you oh, doing this this has nothing to do with our school you know yeah so huh. um it took me like you know some time to convince them and then do some things but it was hard to get advice and also there wasn't anybody that actually had this expertise to give me any advice in this space and after a couple of years i decided okay i'm gonna just stop my phd and actually go to the field and actually learn it by doing so that's how I kind of like ended up in this space. But yeah, I actually now feel like, you know, I have a lot of knowledge in this space in order for me to actually do research. <laughs> so I might think about like, you know, going back or uh, yeah, yeah, or to a different school to, you know, write something, you know, on this. Yeah. stuff. So. Yeah. But- Sorry if I'm outing you, but you're you're currently a part of uh, the fellowship or am I like confusing this entirely? A writing fellowship with a like they're kind of they're like a company right now that like is trying to basically build digital social media that is particularly designed with like black and brown folks in mind kind of thing and so so yeah i think that's also part of what has gotten me thinking about this is like even how to build like how to build the communities on the internet that like are also a little bit more like self-determining and things like that the um yeah i always think that like self the I feel like this, this, I mean, this is just something I've been thinking about a lot, the, the whole self-determinism piece. I, I've been talking about it with Noah here and there too, just how important it is. And I think it comes up um, both in the Greece work and that um, there's just such, such an immense value on a psychological level of the boys being able to have control and be able to determine what they're building and have, you know, uh, have these skills that they themselves own. And then similarly on, on this is actually why I thought about your fellowship Humphrey is because I knew yeah. you were doing something with like self-governance and controlling your own social media network. Um, and yeah, it's just such a, I mean, in some ways it seems like straightforward, but, but it is a, a pretty radical departure from the way most companies approach design, which is like, yeah, yeah, it's called human-centered design, but it's very much like, I will design this for you. Um, right. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely scarier, right? Even what I've been like thinking about in that space has been still trying to solve like very specific problems around the health of the community. I don't know. It's, it's just something I've been thinking a lot more about, especially with regards to civic design, I suppose. Well, yeah. an interesting historical tidbit, um, 
is that actually a lot of the early research and participatory design is actually a, a civic setting, like for governments, particularly in like the 70s and like the Northern European states. Yeah, countries, yeah. um, right, right. I'm not 100% sure where the, the space is at right now. I don't know if I'm for you have a better pulse on that or he won, but um, yeah, yeah. It's definitely not like the flip of the like international development case, but like, and it's because it's, it's all still like building capacity within a given community, right? To then solve problems that the community itself faces. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I never see like governments like really building <laughs> the tools for this, even though it feels like a necessary part of like, a government's infrastructure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The problem. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I guess you did mention that there may be like government support for like the work that's happening in, in Athens, but like, Oh yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, like on the system level, um, we, we all do like realize like to make like real impact, you know, uh, you know, policy change is like really crucial. So there is a team at D-Lab that kind of focus on the ecosystem of things. So uh, kind of bringing in different stakeholders, like not just, you know, end users and things and stuff, but, you know, uh, different like government officials, uh, also uh, policymakers and things and stuff into the equation to kind of like, you know, co-create together. So, yeah, uh, definitely. We also feel like, you know, uh, that our project uh, in order to actually make it more uh, impactful and then actually reach more beneficiaries. We just have to like, you know, make it into something where the Greek government maybe could be acknowledged at what we're doing, or maybe give us like, you know, some type of, I don't know, like a certificate or something that goes through this program that's official uh, that could make it more appealing to a lot more unaccompanied like refugee miners. Uh, so whenever we do like webinars or presentations, we uh, always invite like people from the Ministry of Education in Greece to see, you know, the work that we're doing uh, in order for them to give us some feedback and also see, like, if there are any, are there any opportunities for us to, you know, have that kind of, I guess, that uh, seal from the Greek government, you know, to make it more official. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah, definitely yeah. into that venue, too. So, and it's a, it's a complex situation with the Greek government. I mean, I it might have changed since I've... Um, oh, like, yeah. ...looked into it, but you, know, <laughs> you can imagine that, like, there's... Um, a fair amount of unemployment and now you have these refugees rolling through or these like labor uh, uh, labor migrants rolling through also trying to um, make a living or, or have a better situation or a better life. Um, so there are definitely uh, parts of the government and parts of the citizenry that have actually been very, very hostile towards refugees. Oh, yeah. Um, um, so, so the boys face immense discrimination and then on a governmental level, that's kind of manifested itself in, um, kind of a sketchy funding situation. Well, so one thing, my impression is that like overall political sentiment towards refugees has gotten worse over time in the year or so, right? Oh yeah. yeah it's got a lot worse. Like in the recent years, there's a really like heavy, like, you know, right wing party that's now like in control of everything. Yeah, so it's an area within yeah. Athens where there's a lot of anarchists like live in that area. There's a lot of um, riots, like things happening. And that's like the one area where the Greek police cannot go inside. Yeah, was, this is this is funny. I remember when we first came into our Airbnb um, on my first trip. And uh, I think the Airbnb host had kind of said something offhand like, yeah, like, you know, 
just, you know, don't get in trouble, stay safe. Like the police won't come here and kind of skimmed over it. And we're like, wait, 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 what? The, the police <laughs> don't come here? Like, and and I don't, I don't know if like we just didn't realize that our Airbnb was like on that square, like a Exarchia Square. Yeah, yeah. But is that one area that where a lot of the refugees are more welcome to the community members who are actually yeah. So that's why, you know, a lot of these different like uh, refugee like organizations are kind of like, you know, just around the corner and things and stuff. So what we are trying to do is whenever we had these uh, so-called showcase nights, you know, where we do presentations, we will try to like invite locals to, you know, like come on over, you know, see what our boys are doing, see what the women are doing. So we kind of like want to open it up to kind of give that message to, you know, at least the people that are around us. Um, and yeah, it's, I guess it's been like somewhat successful, but yeah, we, we do really want to reach out to a bigger, you know, audience and things and stuff to kind of like show this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of, you know, this is like a, this is a recurring D lab theme where like, you're so in the middle of like the project and like, you're working like pretty much like, you know, all hours of the day. And then by the end of it, it's like, oh yeah, like someone, the, the suggestion is always like. Oh yeah, did you like share that? And it's like, oh shit, like you <laughs> a couple of paragraphs and like if you go to the D Lab website right now, I always joke with Hewan, like, I mean, obviously yeah. that's there, but there could be a lot more information yeah. there. Uh, a lot more information right. disseminated on on the work yeah. that's been done. Yeah. There's so many different aspects of this that like need to be in place to uh, make it work. I mean, like there's of the entire program that you like laid out, the design education program that you laid out as far as just like all the different stages of getting people like familiar with one another and then teaching them basic vocational skills and then like teaching them like the principles of design and then like how to like design for others like there's so many elements of even just that but then like there's also this components of really like getting community buy-in and government buy-in and like disseminating the results there's like like it's a whole i'm it's a whole company really like or like in in like silicon valley terms it would end up being like a whole like company but like this is much more of like a like an organization with this very necessary goal i guess of just like empowering um empowering the uh, like refugees like boys girls women like with the skills to kind of like shape their own environments and like create something new that's cool yeah 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 Yeah, well, it's interesting also to think about like all that work that goes in and then going back to what we were saying about, you know, is this like perhaps what more local governments should be thinking about in terms of getting their citizenry involved? But then, you know, using that to realize that like if we were to actually try to do that, it actually would be a lot of work um, (laughs) involved in like governance or, or, you know, determining their environment and shaping their environment. Very curious. This is a question that I'm actively asking myself a lot now where like, as far as like like does it just end up being like a like an alternative government in itself (laughs) in some in some weird way like i think a lot of like because part of the goal of like a local government is to identify the problems and then build the necessary infrastructure for like the city to operate whether it's for the guys to transport or commerce or like emotional well-being or things like that and so like when you build up like all of these components, is it basically just building an alternative form of government that like is operating like kind of within or like, or in parallel with like all the other like more traditional existing systems? <laughs> Nobody sent this podcast to the Greek uh, 
Prime Minister. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dangerous line of research. <laughs> it's not like it's not even like an anarchist thing necessarily. It's more just like a. I'm just curious. Like it's just yeah. it's a lot of the yeah. Like if you're especially when you're making it like the sustainable thing that's like that you've educated the people on how to like create like shape their environments and to like build new things that are meaningful and things like that that like solve real needs like that's like a yeah i don't know if, if it's not necessarily like definitely not to replace any all of those other like things because like for example like building roads and bridges and like uh, like internet infrastructure and all these other things take like a lot of like capital and like specific skills and things like that but like but this very much seems to fill a lot of necessary gaps in that because no matter what that larger system probably won't be able to like have the same kind of on the ground knowledge and skills and like culture and all of that that. so like it it feels like just like a necessary like complementary piece to like a part of like a like what a government is supposed to like actually do (laughs) yeah yeah the um i was gonna say he won i don't know if you've heard more on Libby McDonald's Waste Picker Project. But last I worked on it, which was my senior year, um, it reminded me a lot of that where actually just for context, so essentially many cities in Ghana have uh, troubles with waste management. You know, this is a problem, I mean, in many places, but, you know, in Ghana in particular. Um, and what they, they have this community of waste pickers that go around and pick waste um, both informally and more formally but Libby McDonald was working with them in order to get them to organize and, you know, be able to like help solve problems for one another, unionize, perhaps take care of issues like healthcare or collectively buying resources to help take some of the more extractive, extractive middlemen out of that kind of ecosystem of picking up waste and, and taking care of waste. And part of what our project was, was hosting a co-design summit. I don't know if it was called a summit, co-design session in which local government officials came in and also every stakeholder you could think of, uh, leaders in the neighborhoods, leaders from the waste picker community, government officials, people from companies that produce plastic bottles. Um, All of those stakeholders came in and we did a whole co-design workshop session in which people were able to identify problems, go through the design process and try to collectively as a community create a solution. Now, I, I'm not 100% sure where the project is at now. I know with a lot of those things, like execu- like the, the the actual session was was a great success. People enjoyed it a lot, but you know, that execution is just so hard afterwards. I'm not 100% sure exactly what, what happened afterwards, but in one way, like when we were thinking about, you know, what would that sort of model look like in local governments anywhere in the world? Uh, that is like the first thing that came to mind for me. I mean, that was something that was really hard for us to do. Like, first of all, like, you know, for us to reach out to the government and having them involved was like kind of like way out there. So we didn't even like, you know, you know, really consider that option. But we still like wanted to kind of uh, collaborate with a lot of different NGOs that are around to kind of like, you know, I mean, we're doing this thing, you know, uh, if, what are you guys doing? You know, like if you have students over, send them over. If we have students over, we'll send it over there. Like people have different programs, 
you know, whatever, whatever. We got to like, you know, get together, like, you know, because we are all in for the same kind of like mission, you know, right. basically. But one thing that we kind of like, I don't know, something happened was like during COVID, you know, everybody started to open up, you know, and now we're like collaborating for the first time. Different like organizations are now reaching out to us, you know, if we can work together, which is really interesting. That's why we have, uh, I think, seven shelters, boy shelters that we're basically doing these online classes with, which in the past, like that never happened before. So it's... So it sounds like as you build out that network of NGOs, you'd like start partnering with them, building trust with those like more local like NGOs. And then like over time, that kind of like starts getting a lot more attention, starts like, and then like the government's role is maybe less in terms of like an initial partnership and more in terms of like helping, maybe helping to expand it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's like really necessary because I just like see so many NGOs like basically doing the same program, right? Yeah. Yeah. Some are like, oh, we teach Greek. I teach Greek. I teach Greek too. You know, I teach Greek Greek too. You know, it's like, all right, so let's, let's, you know, I, I, you know, yeah, let's figure out something here, guys. You know, we're, there's like a hundred NGOs out there. All right. You know, we teach Greek, English, uh, you know, different things in our center uh, because we thought it's important, you know, to learn, know the language, right? Yeah. But we just don't have the capacity and might, we might not be the best experts to actually teach that. Why can't we send our beneficiaries over there where it's they're like super qualified to teach these languages and have their boys or women come to our center to take some of our activities? It's, we got to work together, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it just didn't work out in the past, but I think now things are changing. And we are actually also, you know, engaging other like organizations where we're sending our students for the first time to go participate in different programs. You know, yeah. So this right. movement is now happening which really excites me and i think you know uh, hopefully it continues yeah and like these are all things that you've already like identified are necessary in your process right like you were already like yeah. you were already starting to do this kind of thing like whether it was like teaching greek or things like that so it's now you're just relying on like partnering collaborating i guess collaborating yes all of these other yeah yeah it reminds me of something that <laughs> um our friend shuya like usually brings up around this idea of like collaborative advantage (laughs) Um, and just like really trying to identify the synergies between like all these different uh, different groups and just put them together and like actually make it happen (laughs) yeah 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 you know actually you you know especially during my time at harvard i would sometimes describe like the trips i would get to go on through d lab and everyone would be like oh my god i wish i had that opportunity and i would um kind of psychologically slap them in the face and be like, yo, just sign up for the class next semester. This is not like some esoteric opportunity that's far away from you. It's right here. Um, so it'd be great, Hiwan, if you want to mention like maybe ways to, to follow the work you're doing or maybe even like follow what D-Lab does. Well, currently during COVID, um, unfortunately all the trips are canceled right now. So we're not really sure when the trips will happen again, which was kind of like one of the biggest reasons, uh, you know, while it was, I think it was, not the biggest reason, but it was a way to really attract a lot of students, I think, to some of the courses, for sure. But there's, like, different ways to engage. We still need a lot of students who can help us out with the curriculum building. So still there's a bunch of activities that we have to figure out on how we can transfer them into an online platform, like other opportunities on how we could actually create our own online platform for them to access these materials more easily. Um, 
so yeah, so there's a bunch of different opportunities that you can, you know, uh, if if you are willing that you can, you know, definitely come and join and then just like send me an email and then, you know, ask me if there is any opportunity that you can join. Um, and obviously you can just take the course and then, you know, just learn more about the humanitarian innovation sector. And then after that, decide on whether you want to kind of like participate or not. So, yeah. Um, but until the, uh, you know, the traveling, you know, uh, ban is lifted, you know, I don't think any of the traveling will actually happen, which really sucks because it is kind of like a, a transformative experience for a lot of the students to actually go on the trip because we don't go on this trip to just like have this cultural kind of experience, but to, we actually train ourselves to, uh, you know, uh, for months to actually, you know, be able to deliver the stuff that we want to deliver and then mostly spend our time to kind of like really make that impact to these individual lives. So, uh, yeah, once the trips are like back up and rolling, you should definitely apply, you know, come with me, come with us to Greece. Hopefully like Evraj and you guys can also tackle on someday and then, you know, actually experience it firsthand. And yeah, obviously we do some extra curriculum activities afterwards sometimes, which is really fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, definitely edit this out. But yeah, the the oh, yeah, yeah. the night scene around there is like, yeah, it gets wild. Roll through. <laughs> um, I mean, work hard, play hard, right? Yeah. So Dude, but yeah, just like on also mentioning like D Lab also always has like fellowships. Um, there's like the IDDS program, um, as well as I mean, he wants this Greece program is just one of uh, dozens of other initiatives that that D Lab works on, all equally uh, interesting and equally cutting edge on the field of code design. So yeah. uh, just to shout out to RISD students. If you are a RISD student listening to this, yeah, come and take my course and then you'll learn a lot about like participatory design, but also, you know, how to be a designer in this space, because a lot of the designers these days are thinking about how they can be more uh, engaged in, you know, social, social issues, uh, how they can be engaged in international development. But there's not many courses out there that actually teach this kind of stuff. But for this course, it's focusing on real projects, which is the Greece project that we talked about. And then learning how you could learn stuff to kind of create impact, you know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Generally, like this was super awesome to just like to hear about your work and like how you approach it. And yeah, just generally for being a part of our conversation. Yeah, thank you for uh, having me here.